Father, we are so thankful that you've reconciled us to yourself through your Son, so we have access to you to worship you. Uh, that is our desire this morning, Lord. We come here for you, uh, primarily about you and what you've done for us. We appreciate, or we're uh, so grateful for the sanctifying work that your word does during this time. But let us also see it as a time of worship, Lord, and by your grace, we would be able to be focused on you, um, that the scriptures would wash over us and we would give such attention to them that we would see it as a, as a communion with you that you could be pleased with. I thank you for these verses, Lord, and the wonderful truth they give us about repentance and the temporary nature of this life. Help us to see all the uh, treasures that are contained in them, Lord, and I pray that I would be able to do justice to them uh, through what I've studied this week, and should there be anything that's absent from my notes because uh, perhaps I missed it or you just chose to introduce this this morning, Lord, I pray you would bring it to my, to my mind and then to my mouth and then to the people's hearts here, Lord, and I pray for each person here that should they have not have repented yet uh, in their lives and put their faith in Christ, that this would be that day of salvation for them. For those who have repented, Lord, grow us and sanctify us into the image and likeness of your Son. Thank you for what he's done for us and the great privilege of becoming more like him each day. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen, amen. The title of this morning's sermon is, Are We Suffering for Sin? Are We Suffering for Sin? On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Many times I have responded to people's questions by asking them a question. And someone asked me why I do that so frequently, and I said, well, why shouldn't I? Do you guys? (laughs) So, um... Hopefully, the rest of the sermon will go over better than that. (laughs) If you respond to people's questions by asking them a question, you shouldn't feel bad about it because who else did that? Two times in these short verses, we see him respond to fairly shocking news uh, about two calamities, not by explaining what happened, which is probably what we would expect, but by asking people questions. Look with me at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So instead of just simply saying that Pilate had murdered these Galileans who were worshiping or offering sacrifices, he has a somewhat uh, vivid way of describing the violence that had taken place. This incident is not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. We don't have any other details about what happened, but we do know that it's not out of character for Pilate. When we look at uh, church history, especially, uh, or including the writings of Josephus, the great Jewish historian, he tells us that there were numerous incidents where Pilate murdered Jews. These people weren't just talking to Jesus. Imagine them giving him an important news update. They come to him to share this news with him, and they probably did it for two reasons. First, Jesus and most of his followers were from Galilee, where this had taken place, and so they would assume that he would be interested in hearing about this. And then second, he is perceived as a leader among the Jews, and the people would want to know what his thoughts were uh, regarding what happened. And so understand they come to him and they share this, and they're anticipating a response, a commentary on what has occurred. And it kind of reminded me of like press conferences where there's a prominent political leader, uh, some news is shared with this person, and then this person is supposed to give their thoughts about what has occurred. 
it's also possible that they know that Jesus is going to be, or did I, did I say earlier that this occurred in Galilee? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that if I did. It occurred in Jerusalem, but it was with Galileans. They had come down from the north, and uh, from Galilee in the north, headed to Jerusalem in the south. They were offering sacrifices there when Pilate murdered them. And so these people sharing the news with Jesus, they probably know that he's on his way to Jerusalem uh, where this violence had taken place, and it could even be that they're warning him about going there. Whatever the case is, when Jesus received this news, it put him in a pretty difficult situation because there were two res- possible responses, it seems. If he ignored what Pilate did, if he, if he didn't condemn it, then how are the Jews going to feel? They're going to be upset with him, right? That he, that he didn't criticize Pilate's behavior. They're possibly going to think that he's pro, pro-Roman. They're going to think that he's disloyal to the Jews. The other alternative is he does condemn what Pilate uh, did. He defends the Jews, and then he's going to be in trouble with the Romans, and he could even end up being arrested. The Jewish leaders would have a good excuse to have him hand him over to the Romans and quote, the, quote whatever he said um, slanderously about Pilate. So look how he responds when kind of in this dilemma. Verse 2, he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans, the ones who were murdered, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. Now, if you weren't familiar with this account, is this how you would expect Jesus to respond after hearing news like this? No, I mean, imagine he was just told about these Jews, his brethren, who have been murdered viciously like this. The news reaches him, and wouldn't you expect him to say, I mean, how would you respond? Wouldn't you, what would you say? This is terrible. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear this. What, what a tragedy this is. I can't believe that this has happened. And so we would expect something similar from our Lord. But instead, Jesus turns it around on the people, and he asks them, because it seems to me, although the verses d- don't tell us this, that Jesus said this, I suspect this is the case, because he knew what was in their hearts. Or maybe I should say it like this. He knew what was in their minds. He knew what they were thinking about the Galileans who had been murdered. And so he turns it around and he asks them this question, do you think that the Galileans who were murdered were murdered because they were worse than all other Galileans and they deserve this because of their sinfulness? Now, there's plenty of application in these verses. We're going to talk about it, but let's go through the second account because it's very similar to the first, um, and then we'll talk about the application. So look at the next thing he says to them in verse 3. He says, no, no, they weren't worse sinners, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, if you, if you think about Jesus, think about his perfect righteousness, the, the life he lived, the morality that he has not only lived, but preached uh, and taught up to this point, the sin that he has condemned. When he was told about Pilate's evil actions, this is another moment when you would expect him to condemn Pilate's behavior, condemn Pilate's sins. Instead, he says something which, if, which if we're honest, looks somewhat bizarre and uh, more likely insensitive to these people. Because instead of talking about, I mean, based on the account, who looks like they need to repent? Pilate does. Instead of talking about Pilate's need to repent, he talks about the need of these, at least regarding this account, seemingly innocent people's need to repent. In other words, you would expect him to talk about Pilate's sins. Instead of talking about Pilate's sins, he talks about the people's sins. Look at verse 4 to see him make the same point again. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, 
and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And again, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so apparently another incident that's not recorded for us anywhere else in Scripture, no other details elsewhere given, a tower fell and tragically killed 18 people. It doesn't seem like this time, the, the previous account, they brought this news to Jesus and shared it with them. There's no indication that they shared this account with Jesus. It just seems like Jesus introduces this account that would have been familiar with them, shares, that, shares with them and says, hey, this other situation that had taken place where these people were tragically killed, are you, are you thinking the same thing about them, that the ones who um, were, were, were uh, crushed by that tower happened to be worse than all the other people who were not killed? And he brings up this second account just to further emphasize the points that he's making. And in doing this, if you look at these two situations together, you kind of get an elevated view. It's interesting. They, they provide a very broad uh, view of death, or they provide a way to view death from multiple angles. Or in other words, it's almost like these two accounts, two situations of people's deaths complement each other fairly well. Because in the first situation, what were the people doing when they were killed, when they were murdered? They were worshiping, or they were doing something religious, offering sacrifices, Right? In the second situation, what were the people doing? Well, something pretty natural, it seems. Just walking around, perhaps going into a tower, coming out of a tower, walking near a tower. When it collapsed, nothing immoral, but definitely nothing religious. The first situation could be blamed, or, or not could, but should be blamed on a very wicked man, and that's Pilate. When the second situation, if you think about this, when natural calamities or disasters take place, who do people blame? God. The first account, you can blame a wicked man. The second account would be one where people would typically blame God. Why would God allow this to happen? How could a loving God, why would God let people die like this? If he's sovereign or he's in control, why would he, why would he allow something like this to take place? So using both of these situations, Jesus seems to encourage all of us to look at death from very different angles. But what's interesting is, regardless of how you look at death, the response is still the same. He says the exact same thing, regardless of how people die, regardless of who's at fault, regardless of how tragic it is, regardless of how religious or non-religious it is, his encouragement is still the same. He answered his own question for the second time and told everyone that unless they repented, they were also going to perish. And in saying this, what he did and I think this is an important uh, thing for us to notice because he did, this, he did this with his people listening and he wants to do this with us, I believe. He takes these very physical, earthly, natural circumstances, and I, I just mean natural. I don't mean people getting murdered as natural. I mean it's natural in that it's not supernatural. It's not spiritual. And then what he does is he takes the earthly, physical, natural, and he elevates it to a higher level. He tells everyone to look at this spiritually. He brings it to uh, a heavenly perspective. And so because Jesus wants to take these physical accounts and cause us to look at them spiritually, let's consider the spiritual application for them. And this brings us to lesson one. Suffering isn't always the result of sin. Lesson one, suffering isn't always the result of sin. I don't know if it's just me, but when I read about the Tower of Siloam falling and killing these people, I tend to think about September 11th and the Twin Towers falling. 
And one of the things that's kind of interesting is that I see some parallels between September 11th and between these verses that we're reading here, because when, the, when September 11th took place, there were many people who claimed that God was judging America. I was not a Christian at that time, say nothing about a pastor. I hope that if I had been a pastor at that time, that I would not have said that God was judging America, and here's why. God might not have been judging America any more than he was judging Galilee when these Galileans were killed. I'd like to think, unless I was absolutely convinced, you know, I could, God spoke to me. I don't even know how, because I, I don't believe that happens. I don't believe God speaks to us audibly like that. Someone told me, I was listening to Justin Peters, and he said, if you want God to speak to you, then you read his word. And if you want God to speak to you audibly, then read his word aloud. <laughs> and so God couldn't, even, God couldn't even come and tell me that he was judging. I mean, I wouldn't expect him to act that way. He could do it, I suppose. I shouldn't say he couldn't do it, but I would not expect him to do it. And without him doing that, I would like to think that I would not say that God is judging America or, or anyone through some tragic event without confirmation from him that that's the case. And these two situations are pretty good indication that the people who were judged were not judged because they were worse sinners than anyone else. God wasn't punishing their sin. If we think about the first account, we would say that a wicked man, Pilate, was acting wickedly. And so if you said, if someone asked me, you know, put a mic in my face and said, well, give me a comment on what happened with September 11th, I would say, well, again, you've just got some wicked people who flew some planes into a building. But I don't think I would turn around and say that it was, it was God judging. The first account, you've got a wicked man, Pilate, acting wickedly. Similarly, when the ten, Twin Towers fell, we could say that more wicked men were acting wickedly. If we say that God was judging America on September 11th, or if we were to say that these, this tower fell and uh, killed these people because of their sin, it leaves us with some troubling questions. And I would say that it's the same troubling questions that Jesus was trying to get his listeners to consider. Do we think that the people who died in the Twin Towers were worse than all the other people who what? Who didn't die simply because they suffered that way or some of the people were acting fairly, not fairly, that's such, that would be um, fair, almost insulting. Some people were acting very heroically that day when they ran into the building, the firemen, and risked their lives to see who they could save. Are we going to think that, the, that God was judging them because they suffered that way? If God was trying to punish America, then why were the people in the Twin Towers the ones who died versus all the other people who died? And I'm using the Twin Towers as an illustration because it seems to communicate or reveal the exact same points that Jesus is making from these verses, that suffering is not always the result of sin. Now, did you notice how I worded that? I'm trying to be precise with my language. I said that suffering is not always the result of sin. And why did I say that? Because suffering can be the result of sin. (laughs) Suffering can be the result of sin. We can suffer because of what we have done. And we can cause suffering to other people because of what we have done. 1 Peter 2.20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, in other words, we're suffering for sinning, what benefit is it if you endure that? 1 Peter 3.17, which is kind of an interesting thing to consider, that Peter is basically saying there's no benefit for sinning and then suffering as a result or enduring that well. 1 Peter 3.17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. So again, Peter's talking about suffering for sin. 1 Peter 4.15, if you suffer, 
Don't let it be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. So Peter says, you can definitely suffer because of your sin. So if you are going to suffer, just make sure that it's not because of sinful things you've done to cause it. The first half of Hebrews 12, it's about God's discipline, or we could say it's about suffering we experience because of our sin. And then verse 5, it says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved or disciplined or chastised by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So when we're disciplined or chastised for our sin, that's a form of suffering, right? Have there been times that you have sinned, you have felt God's discipline, his hand is heavy on you, and, that's, and you thought, I am suffering right now, and I am suffering because of what I've done. One of the great encouragements, which we can draw from Hebrews 12, is at least this is evidence of a few things. First, that God loves us because he disciplines those he loves, and second, it's evidence that we are his children because a few verses later, it says that if we sin and are not disciplined by God as a result, then that is evidence that we are not his children. But the point is still the same, that there can be some suffering that takes place because of our sin. Turn one book to the right to John 9. There's also plenty of suffering that has nothing to do with our sin. Or maybe here's another way to say it. Human tragedies or human suffering are not always divine punishments. John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this right here captured the thinking of the day, and it actually captured the thinking that Jesus was trying to, to correct here in John 9 and in Luke 13, that if they're suffering, in this case, a man's blindness, that there must have been some sin involved. Either he sinned or his parents sinned for him to be born blind. But Jesus responded in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but instead that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I don't want to sidetrack the sermon too much, but right here we are seeing one of the clearest reasons that suffering takes place. I mean, you could have an entire sermon about this, that it takes place to reveal the works of God, or suffering takes place because it, God can be glorified through it. And I know that might not be the most um, thrilling thought for us, but scripture is absolutely clear about that and this is one of those times when we come to the bible it is not a buffet to us we do not we do not disregard those things that we don't like or that we are uncomfortable with we're presented with this fact that when we suffer it could be god's way of wanting to be glorified through it and so then one of the questions during our suffering becomes this not how can i get out of it although i don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with wondering how we can bring our suffering to an end but one of the questions we should be asking is i am suffering right now and how can i bring glory to god through what i'm experiencing and this is important to understand it's important to understand that suffering isn't always the result of sin but that suffering can be the result of sin because i think it is bound up in us to always believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. 
when really good, wonderful things happen to people, what do we tend to wonder? What did they do to deserve that? When really bad, terrible things happen to people, what do we tend to wonder? What did they do to deserve that? Jesus corrects this thinking with these verses. Two times he asks the same question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. Do you think that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse sinners or offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, no. So bad things happen to these people, not because of anything they did or not because they were worse than anyone else. What was the main mistake that Job's friends made that really stands as, a, as an example for us to learn from? They were convinced that he was suffering terribly because he sinned terribly. If, if suffering is associated with sin and you've got the individual who's suffering worse than anyone else in all of human history, well, then he must be the worst sinner in all of human history. But, when God, but what's interesting is at the beginning of the book, and it's nice the way that God did this. If God didn't give us Job chapter 1, if maybe he took chapter 1 and he put it at the end of the book or just wasn't in there at all, if we couldn't see behind the curtain between the conversation or in uh, the conversation between God and the devil, you could very well think the same thing as Job's friends. You could think that he was a terribly wicked man to be experiencing this, that God must be horribly upset with him to, to, uh, and punishing him in, in this, in this um, unimaginable way because of how evil he's been. But instead, the book opens with this presentation of righteousness that's almost foreign to everyone else in all of Scripture. I mean, few people, how, how much would you love to be presented or described the way that Job is in the beginning of this book? God says, Job 1, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the face of the earth. He is a blameless and an upright man. He fears God and he turns away from evil. I mean, who, who wouldn't just um, love being able to give him that, be given that description by God when he looks down? Have you considered my servant and then your name there? No one like him on the face of the earth, blameless, upright, fears God, turns from evil. And here's the thing. When we consider that the man who is arguably the most righteous individual in the entire Old Testament was at least the most righteous man of his day, also happens to be the man who is most associated with suffering, we cannot associate sin and suffering. We can't associate unrighteousness with suffering when seeing such a righteous man suffering in such a terrible way. Hebrews 11 contains the hall of faith of all the great people in Scripture. This chapter is a record of those people that, that God plucked out and put down as examples to highlight. He discusses many of them as you're reading through Hebrews 11 and seeing all of the wonderful um, things they did by their faith. You get toward the end and listen to this. Be, well, <laughs> let me just say this. As you're reading about how great and wonderful these people have been, and then God kind of summarizes his discussion about them and their lives. Wouldn't you expect him to say something like, and they were all blessed so much. They had lived so righteously. They had, they had earned such favor and, and goodness from God and all of his gifts poured out and bestowed on their life. Something like that. Instead, this is what it says. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. 
They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. So the great heroes of the faith, they suffered terribly, not be, well, I was going to say not because of their godliness, but that would actually be true. Many of them suffered because of their godliness. They didn't suffer because of their sin, and they sure didn't suffer because they weren't godly enough. They suffered often because of their relationships with the Lord. Second only to Christ, if you had like kind of a New Testament, Job or Jeremiah, Paul would be a pretty close second to them regarding suffering. Listen to what he said, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. far greater labors, imprisonments, countless beatings. He can't even remember how many times he's been beaten. Often near death, five times I received 40 lashes, lest one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, frequent journeys, dangers on rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I've been in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposed. And apart from those things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And so what does it seem like Job's righteousness or godliness, or excuse me, what does it seem like Paul's godliness brought into his life? excruciating suffering. You get the point that people can suffer terribly, go through excruciating situations, have to deal with horrible circumstances in their lives, and as Jesus said, they are not worse sinners than anyone else. In fact, in many of these instances, they are godlier individuals than others. Job, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, Paul, they're far from the only examples most of the greatest men in scripture suffered terribly the prophets the other apostles most of them martyred with the exception of john i believe church history says he was boiled in oil he survived and then they put him on the island of patmos in exile look at church history some of the most wonderful christians whether they were missionaries whether they were church leaders they ended up being martyred they suffered terribly yet they did nothing to cause the suffering that they experienced personally speaking some of the godliest people that that i've known people i greatly respect uh, look up to would desire to be more like or have fruit in my life that i see in their lives have suffered terribly they've gone through things i haven't had the slightest idea why it was allowed to happen to them conversely there are other people i've looked at and i haven't understood why they haven't suffered more to be to be frank with you They've gone through things, and I haven't been able to explain why it would happen. I've been asked questions about suffering. I've had, I haven't had the slightest idea why people were allowed to experience it. I could just tell that they hadn't done anything to cause it. In many of the instances, they were actually suffering because of other people's sins, sort of like the first account. Imagine the suffering that was caused by this wicked man, Pilate's sins. Imagine all the people that suffered because of what he did. Sometimes people are talking to me. I'm looking what they're going through, or I'm listening to this, the suffering that they're experiencing, and I actually could explain it that time because I could say, you're going through it because of what this other person has done, because of how wickedly this person has acted. And I'll conclude this lesson by saying this. The popular tendency in the event of a tragedy is to think that the suffering people did something to deserve it. 
But if they didn't sin, because we do know that there is some suffering as a result of sin, but if they didn't sin to cause it, we have to resist that temptation to think that they did something to introduce this into their lives. I would say we need to resist it as strongly as we need to resist superstition. Good things happen to these people because they are lucky. Bad things happen to these people because they are unlucky. That's superstition. As Christians, we take all of these tragedies, all of these, all of this suffering, and we can't explain it, but we reconcile it with God's sovereignty, understanding that He is in control, and that beyond, beyond our thinking, beyond our sight, physically or spiritually speaking, there, this fits into the framework of God's plan, and there's some way for Him to be glorified through it. There's some way that He's using it, according to Romans 8.28, for good. And there's some way, as, as difficult as it is to consider at times, that we are privileged to be kind of a small cog, a small gear as all of this is unfolding, and that God would allow us to, serve, to suffer and serve Him in this way and be an instrument of His glory. Now, the next lesson, lesson two, all suffering is the result of sin. All suffering is the result of sin. All suffering is not the result of sin, but it's equally true that all suffering is the result of sin if we're talking about what sin? We're talking about the fall. Take your minds back to creation. Six days, God creates land, sun, moon, stars, sea creatures, birds, animals. At the end of each day, he looks and he says it was good. Genesis 1, 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25. After everything's finished, Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. Now, when God can look and say that something is very good, then we know there's, there must not be any suffering involved yet. But then Adam and Eve sinned. All of creation is corrupted. After the fall, God talks to Adam and Eve about the suffering that they're going to experience as they live in this sinful, fallen world. And that's really what the conversation with Adam and Eve is about. It, do, it's not, it doesn't look that long. I'm not sure if God actually said more to them than is recorded there, but what it really is is God's way of saying, because you've sinned, you will now live in a world that is filled with suffering. Now, adding to the corruption and adding to the suffering is the fact, because you're kind of listening to this and you're mad, right? Have you ever kind of gotten mad at Adam and Eve before? <laughs> and you're like, man, they ruined it for everyone. But then if you're honest, you're like, but then I sin, so I'm not better than them. Well, adding to this suffering or the corruption that creation experiences is the fact that every single other human being who has lived after Adam and Eve has introduced more sin into creation because of our, our own selfishness. And every single sin has made things worse. Have you ever thought about that? Every single sin that you have committed, every single sin I have committed has made the world worse, has made it worse for myself, has made it worse for all of the people around me. And so all of this corruption is worse. All of this suffering is made worse by all of this sin that's being wrought every single day. There's these ripple effects. Sin always affects more than just the sinner during our morning Bible study yesterday, talking about Achan and how troubling it is that, um, well, for multiple reasons. First, they go out and they lose an AI. 
These people get killed, and you're like, well, why did they get killed for Achan's sin? And then Achan's family might have died. And if they weren't involved in it, well, then you're troubled by the fact that Achan's family died. Achan is probably the best example in all of Scripture of the reality that sin always affects more than just the sinner, those ripples just going out, hurting others, so many other people. And that's the case here with Pilate. How many people suffered as a result of Pilate's sin? Not just the Galileans he murdered, but those were brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, friends, neighbors, to who knows how many people that were affected by his sin. And so becoming a Christian, it doesn't insulate us from the ugliness and the suffering in the world. It doesn't protect us from the natural temporary consequences of sin. Lesson three, we don't always get to find out why we are suffering. We don't always get to find out why we are suffering. We have to be careful of thinking that we understand why people are going through difficult experiences. Bad things happen. We want to know why, but let me just ask this. If there's one person, I'll give you a hint, capital P, in all of human history that you could talk to when you're suffering because you want answers, who would that be? Paul? Oh, that does have a capital P. I meant Jesus. You kind of messed up my analogy there a little bit, Jack. (laughs) I meant Jesus. But Paul would be a great one to ask too, I suppose. But here's the thing. They asked Jesus right here. And what happened? He didn't tell them. He didn't give them any answer. He gave them no insight whatsoever. So here's my point. If, you, if we could talk to Christ face to face and you have all these questions that you want to ask, and let's say you have been struggling your whole life with this question about suffering, and you could talk to him, you might not get any more insight than he gave these people this day regarding these two events. And what's interesting is this makes it very much like the book of Job. Because one of the main points of the book of Job, it's really kind of ironic if you think about this for a moment. Job is the book most commonly associated with suffering, and it does almost nothing to explain suffering. Think about that for a moment. If, I, if someone's suffering, and they say, what is the book in the Bible that would most discuss suffering? You're like, Job, you got to read the book of Job. But if they read the book of Job, it gives no insight into why suffering takes place. There is no explanation for Job about why he went through all that. He spent the entire book wanting to know why he was suffering so terribly, but he never found out. And then here's one of the other ironies. Well, you could say, well, maybe Job never found out because God never answered him. (laughs) Did God answer Job? Job I might be wrong about this, but I believe Job had the longest recorded conversation with God in all of Scripture. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who had as, well, as a pretty one-sided conversation, wasn't it? (laughs) But with that said, can you think of anyone else in Scripture that God talked to as much, or maybe questioned, as much as he did with Job? The longest conversation in all of the Bible occurred with Job So God definitely responded to him, and he still gave him no explanation for why he was suffering. 
So based on these verses, based on the book of Job, we probably should not expect any answers to our suffering. Jesus discussed these tragic events and he gave no indication for why they took place, even though he is the one person that we would expect to be able to explain this sort of suffering that he's recounting in these two events. And the longer I'm in ministry, the more suffering that either I experience personally or witness in the lives of others, the more convinced I become that we often do not get to find out why. I have had to watch very godly people suffer, sometimes even suffer terribly. I've had to watch wicked people do wicked things, often doing wicked things to righteous people or often even doing wicked things to the church. And then you sit back and you say, why are they able to get away with this? Why, why would this be able to happen, Lord? And we just don't seem to get any answer for the suffering that we see. I don't understand, which means that I'm forced to walk by faith. You don't get any answers, which means you're forced to walk by faith. We are simply expected to trust God. Lesson four, we must all repent or perish eternally. Lesson four, we must all repent or perish eternally. So if Jesus, if Jesus wasn't explaining why these two tragedies occurred, because isn't it kind of ironic that he talks about these two tragedies, but he doesn't explain them? So then what was his point? His point is that asking why these things happened is what? the wrong question. It seems to me we're not supposed to look at suffering and ask why it happened. Instead, it seems like the right question to ask is, have I repented? What does this mean for me? Am I responding well to it? I cannot explain why it's occurring, but I can ask, am I responding well to it? What would be the response that would bring the most glory and honor to God through this. Two times Jesus pointed out that those people who died, and follow me for a moment because this is interesting, two times Jesus pointed out that the people who died were not worse sinners than the other people who lived, but let me be clear about what he was not saying. He wasn't saying that those people who perished were what? Innocent. He wasn't saying that they were innocent, or maybe someone said sinless. He's saying that they weren't worse or guiltier than everyone else, but they were still plenty guilty, plenty sinful themselves, just like all of us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in that verse, God doesn't seem to single out anyone falling further or i suppose shorter than anyone else it just seems that everyone is equally far from god from the perfect standard that that he would require for us to be able to go to heaven in our own effort and similarly jesus doesn't single anyone out in these verses in terms of needing repentance more or less than anyone else instead he simply it's a very exhaustive statement he just says everyone must repent basically very sweeping, very broad. Now, earlier I said that Jesus took what happened physically and he encouraged his readers to apply it spiritually. Now, if you, if, and probably the most important way to apply this spiritually is contained in the word 
perish. We don't want to misunderstand what Jesus is talking about here. So if you're in your Bible, you can go ahead and you can circle the word perish. It occurs twice. You can draw a little line from it and you can write eternally. Jesus is not talking about people perishing what? Physically, right? Because even if you repent, you're still going to what? Perish physically. Jesus isn't encouraging people to repent so that they can live longer physically. He's saying if you don't repent, you're going to perish eternally. Jesus is saying, these people perished physically, but if you do not repent, you are going to perish in an infinitely worse way. You are going to perish eternally. You think what happened to these people is bad, but you need to think about what could happen to you if you don't repent because it is much worse. And here's what else I think Jesus is doing in these verses. It seems like Jesus takes their logic or their argument, which is wrong, but he actually brings it to the logical conclusion. Let me say that one more time. He takes their argument, albeit wrong, and he brings it to the logical conclusion for them because it still makes a truthful point. And here's what I mean if that sounds confusing. Jesus is looking at people who believe that certain people die because of their what? Because of their sin. So it's like Jesus says, if these people perished because they are sinners, then all of you are going to perish as well because you are also sinners. He's looking at people who believe God punished these people because of their sin. So it's like Jesus says, okay, if God does punish people because of their sin, then that means you should be terrified. That means that you better repent. And so if you think that the people that Pilate murdered, or if you think that the people who died when that tower fell died because they're worse sinners or because of their sinfulness, then you better be terrified too because you're a sinful person. John Milton, he was an English poet. He's most well known for writing Paradise Lost. And this past week I read about a story about him that when he was old and he was blind, Charles II, who was the son of the king that the Puritans had beheaded, so he's the son of a man who was beheaded, he visits John Milton and he sees, for some reason, or believes John is at fault for his father's beheading. And so Charles looks at this blind John Milton, and, and Charles says to John, you are blind, and it is a judgment from God for the part that you played in my father's beheading. And so John Milton says, if I lost my sight because of God's judgment, what does that say about your father who lost his head? <laughs> so Jesus's point to his sinner or his sinners well his sinners I was going to say listeners but his sinners that's we are all his sinners Jesus's point to his listeners is pretty close to John Milton's point if God does punish sinners like you think he does then you have even more reason to repent because of your own sin now I don't know uh, if I'm mischaracterizing any of you, but I don't like funerals, and I'm guessing most of you don't as well. There are some, there are some uh, pleasant or even wonderful aspects to them, but there's no getting around the uh, reality that they are a, a time of remembering, even if we're celebrating the person's life, the loss of a loved one. So I don't generally, I don't look forward to funerals. I don't enjoy officiating them, as thankful as I am for the opportunity to share the gospel at them. 
But one of the wonderful things about funerals is what they cause people to do. And funerals cause people to do this uh, more than any other event in all of life. And what's that? They cause people to think about their deaths. They cause people to think about the end of their lives. And generally, they cause people to evaluate where they're at spiritually. They cause people to consider whether they are ready to stand before God. And I mention that because that seems to be what Jesus is doing in these two accounts. People died, and he wants the people who are living to think about their deaths and meeting God. I read another story this past week about a man who was entertaining moving to a city, and he wanted to know what the city was like, and so he reached out to a friend of his who lived in the city. He wanted to know whether the city was violent, and so he asks his friend, what is the death rate in that city? And the friend wrote back, And he said, well, it's one death per person. (laughs) And he said, and I should let you know that lots of people are dying who have never died before. (laughs) So last week I told you that when pastors are attempting to evangelize, they might say something along the lines of, you could die at any moment. You, you know, they'll even tell them, you could be driving home tonight from this evangelistic crusade and you could get in an accident and be killed. And I think a lot of times people are kind of thinking that's pretty unlikely. And so what has always been a little more um, terrifying or sobering to me is the fact that to say no to Christ today could harden your heart a little. And uh, each time you say no to him, harden it even more. So why people would think that they're more receptive to Christ next week or next month than they are today, I think that's more terrifying. So that's generally what I share with people. And, and then it seems like I happen to reach these verses. And Jesus seems to be making the point that the pastors make. <laughs> so I don't think I was criticizing the pastors who say, you could die at any moment, but I don't know if God has a sense of humor. And then I happen to be studying these verses this week, and I'm like, I just talked about pastors doing this last week and saying I wouldn't do that, and then it seems like that's what Jesus himself is doing right here. He talks about us potentially dying at any moment. So these verses are about lives coming to an end unexpectedly. These verses are about lives coming to an end unexpectedly. And why should we think that we have lots of time when they didn't have lots of time. Do you think any of the people in these accounts woke up on their last day and thought that it was their last day? Probably not. But this is why there's some urgency. And for a moment, I just want you to think about appropriate responses to death. When Paul talked to the Thessalonians about the people who died, he said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, don't grieve for those people who have died as others who have no hope. And so it seems to me that an appropriate response to death would be grief. We're just not to grieve hopelessly or grieve without hope. After my dad passed away, I preached a sermon titled, Can Christians Get Angry at Sin and Death? Because I was experiencing anger. I wanted to know if it was appropriate. And because I saw Christ himself get angry at the tomb of Lazarus, I believe at death itself, I think it's an appropriate uh, response as long as um, we are angry but we do not sin in our anger. But then this week, as I studied these verses, it seems that Jesus is telling us the most appropriate response to death when we learn of it. When we learn of death, what is the most appropriate response? Repentance. That's what he's saying. So you can grieve, you can be angry, 
But even more importantly than that, you need to consider whether you have repented because you are going to die too. And that's what Jesus is saying. Death should cause all of us to consider our own mortality and what will happen to us when we die, which should cause us to ask whether he have repented. That's what Jesus wanted his listeners to take away in his day when he spoke to them, and I believe it's what Jesus wants us to take away from these verses as we read them. And so I would ask you that, have you repented? Because if you haven't, you will likewise perish. Father, we thank you for these accounts, and we thank you that following repentance, life is found for us in Christ. But I would ask uh, each person here in the privacy of their own heart to consider whether they have repented. I think especially about young people who perhaps haven't surrendered their lives to Christ yet. If they haven't, Lord, we pray that you'd grant them repentance, convict them about the absence of it. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that we can repent so that we wouldn't perish eternally. We can't avoid perishing physically unless we are alive when Christ returns. That's an end all of us will experience. But thankfully, through repentance and, and faith in Christ, we can look forward to eternal life. And, we, and so we ask you these things. Lord, we thank you in Christ's name, and we ask you for the salvation of those who are unsaved in Christ's name as well. Amen.